We're still in Genesis, but we're earlier in Genesis to kind of set us up for what's going to happen in uh, the beginning of Luke and his gospel. So why don't you turn to chapter 3. We've been here before. We're looking at it from a slightly different angle this time, so it will not be the same thing you heard before. All right, they have absconded. I'm only going to read uh, verses uh, 14 and 15 because hopefully the rest is familiar to you. If not, um, go back after the worship service and peruse that. This is, of course, uh, after the creation of man and woman. God has placed them in the garden. He's given them the task of subduing and ruling. Uh, they're made in His image, and that, ref- that, that task reflects that. And then in comes the serpent who uh, gets them to question, particularly Eve, to question what God has said and to uh, to bite of the the one tree they could not eat the fruit of. And then she gives it to her husband. They realized their great uh, sin, covered themselves up, began to be afraid of God as he arrives. He interrogates them, and this is sort of where we come in, in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, meaning deceiving Eve, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You'll note... If you have, most of your Bibles will have lots of white space in there. It's poetry. It's a song. This is the first song of uh, the Savior that we find in Scripture. But let us pray. Most gracious God, our Heavenly Father, in whom alone dwells all fullness of light and wisdom, illumine our minds, we beseech you, by your Holy Spirit, in the true understanding of your word. Give us grace that we may receive it with reverence and humility unfeigned. May it lead us to put our whole trust in you alone, and so to serve and honor you, that we may glorify your holy name and edify our neighbors by good example. And since it has pleased you to number us among your people, help us to give you love and homage that we owe as children to our Father, as servants to our Lord. And we ask this for the sake of our Master and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I was in sixth grade when this music came out. I know it was sixth grade because the gym teacher would make her trek from the gym, which was all the way on one side of the building, to the farthest limits of the last wing, the farthest away from the gym, my sixth grade classroom with Miss Adams as my teacher. And she would come in, and sometimes she'd just talk during her break, and sometimes she would bring music. And this time she brought a 45. Some of you remember what those funny things are, don't you? Okay? And this was the first time I, I remember hearing the song, We Will Rock You. Okay, Forever, that and We Are the Champions, which is the flip side of that single, became <coughs> tied together 
like, seems like forever now, sports. Every time someone wins a championship, what's get, what gets played over the intercom, we are the champions. Tied together. Not just in my memory, but for most people's memories. There's a sense in which we live vicariously through the, the teams we cheer for. This was a rivalry weekend for a lot of people. A lot of my friends in Florida, Florida, Florida State, going at it. Okay, My friend Morgan is very excited because the Seminoles prevailed over the Gators yesterday. All right, There are many other rivalries that took place yesterday. Michigan against Ohio. Finally, the big blue people are happy, right? But there's a bigger rivalry. One that's nearer and dearer to me, anyway. Red Sox, Yankees. Okay? Doesn't get any better than that now, does it? Okay? That is sort of a rivalry for all times. It is one of the legendary sports rivalries, and it has marked those towns. Okay? You you want be able to have boasting rights if you're part of those towns. And for most of my life, I have not had boasting rights. It's those Yankees. The evil empire which keeps prevailing over my beloved team, squashing them down, beating them down. Living vicariously. Not just through the triumph, but also through the tragedy. I want you to think of that. That sense of rivalry, that sense of uh, being put down, that sense of eventually triumphing as we look at this text this morning. Because that's really what this song is about. It's about a great rivalry that doesn't look good for a long time, but then ends up very well. The big idea is that God's promise to defeat Satan is fulfilled in Christ. Remember again that this is a song. This is poetry. Feel the rhythm. Kind of go with it a little bit. You know, the imagery that's there. It's not all, you know, it's not prose. It's poetry. But we see, first of all, that God cursed the serpent above all things. The shalom of the garden, and in fact, of the whole world has been shattered through deceit, which led into sin. First, Adam was deceived by the serpent, and then... She sinned. Notice that. It's interesting in a number of ways, just to kind of go back over some ground that we've been on before. Scripture reaffirms that she is the one who sinned first. First Timothy. Okay? But Paul, the same one who said that in First Timothy, whose sin brought death and sin into the whole world? Was it Eve's sin? It was Adam's sin. He sinned second. But it was his sin that that brings everyone into this condition of sin. That covenant headship thing that we talk about is right there present in the way in which Paul looks at how sin came into the world. But anyway, back to what's going on here. There there was this, this great shattering of shalom that takes place because the serpent spoke these lies to Eve, and we have sort of this question that immediately pops up. Because remember, we believe in progressive revelation. Okay, We know more than Moses knew. Okay? Because God continued to speak to his people, and we, gave, we got more and more information. But the question that should arise for us at this point is, who is the serpent? 
Why is Eve not surprised that a snake is talking to her? Don't you ever have that question? Moses doesn't really supply us with that answer. He probably, possibly did not know the identity of the serpent. But we do. We read about it in Revelation 12 already this morning. Because it identifies that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And so, we're not sure exactly how this happened, whether it is just the evil one taking the shape of a serpent, or whether he possessed a real serpent. We're not sure which of those two things take place, but there's a close identity in this text between the serpent and the evil one. Okay? What takes place, <coughs> pardon me, is that right before this, God has interrogated the original couple, Adam and Eve, and he's sort of said, what have you done? And of course, what did they do? They blamed someone else. Okay, We've been doing that ever since. But he does not interrogate the serpent. He launches directly into judgment upon the serpent. And the first part of that judgment is the curse, that the, the serpent is cursed above or more than any other animal. Okay, it uses that nice poetic summary. All livestock, meaning all domesticated animals. Okay, domesticated animals are under the curse. Beasts of the field, wild animals, they too exist under the curse, and yet God says that the one that is cursed most is going to be the serpent. This is seen by the fact that crawls upon the ground. What's the humblest place on earth to walk on the ground? Not to walk on the ground, to be on the ground, to breathe in the dirt, to eat the dirt, so to speak. The serpent must eat dirt. It's sort of an ironic picture of his humiliation and his subject, uh, subjection. Yeah, my tongue's not working this morning. Okay? He deceived the ones made from the dirt, the dust. And so now he is going to breathe and eat the dust. So there's, a, there's an ironic quality to what's going on in this text. But there's also this picture of not just humiliation, but subjection. We see even in Revelation 12... Now, we don't have time to go look at what's going on completely in that chapter uh, and, and whether the, the, the war in heaven takes place before or after what takes place with the birth of the baby. But know this. What does it say? He lost and was tossed down to the earth. Okay? So there was a, there was a humiliation and, and subjection that was going to take place. The curse in Scripture, is always related to disobedience. Okay? Uh, many of us have gotten our theology from horror movies. Okay, you know, like I, I watched the new version of the Werewolf recently, or the Wolfman recently, and I remember the old version with Lon Chaney Jr. You know, there's the old Gypsy, and she, you know, there's the curse that takes place, and there's this whole idea of, you know, it doesn't matter. The curse is irrelevant. It's like, you know, you pay someone to put a curse on somebody. Okay? And so bad things happen to them. And so our theology of a curse sometimes can be more influenced by how the world thinks of a curse than how Scripture speaks 
of a curse. And the curse is always related to disobedience. And so the curse is placed on Adam. The curse is placed on Eve. We see that through them, when Cain disobeys, another curse is placed upon Cain for his disobedience. He's going to be separated from the land. Israel was, was threatened with curses and experienced curses when they committed apostasy and turned away from the, the one true living God and began to worship idols. They no longer enjoyed the, the blessing and the promise of the land and they were removed from the land. It also falls upon the land itself, creation. We see that as well in Romans 12, uh, 8, where Paul talks about how creation groans under the weight of the curse. It is not as it was intended to be. What does this word mean to curse? It means to, to snare or to bind, to render someone or something powerless, making them unable to fulfill their function. That's the idea of a curse. It's not just bad things, but you're not able to do that which you were intended to do. Or that it becomes far more difficult. And so we see, for instance, the curse upon Eve. What happens? Okay? Her relationship with her husband is damaged. Now there's a power struggle. It becomes very painful for her to bear children and to raise children. It doesn't just stop with the bearing of the children. Right, women? It continues. Okay. What happens with, with Adam is now his relationship with the earth, the ground that he was supposed to work to make it bear fruit, has been damaged. And now he sweats, but he does not get as much as he used to. Now he gets a lot of thorns and thistles and not just the fruit and the vegetables. Okay. Work became hard. Work, which was a gift of God, became difficult. Futility was introduced into the equation. It's not just us, but also the, the idea that creation is hindered from growth and prosperity. It groans until the end of time. I know there are a few Red Sox fans out there who are familiar with the futility, the absolute utter futility that the Red Sox experienced, which is sort of strange because prior to 18, uh, 1918, they were the most successful baseball team in America. They had the most World Series championships up until that point in time. Okay? I think it was five. In a short period of time, they were very, very successful. And then some people claim it was because they sold Babe Ruth to the Yankees. I don't know. But before that point in time, the Yankees were hideous, lousy. They didn't win anything. And so began this great streak of them dominating the world of baseball. For nine decades plus, they won over 25% of the World Series titles. They dominated baseball, and often at the expense of the Boston Red Sox, who were in their own division. And so a lifelong Red Sox fan knows all of these sorts of things. It knows about how the, the one time Ted Williams got into the World Series. They played an exhibition game prior to the World Series. He gets hit by a pitch and is not the same in the World Series. His one chance, blown. There's also the reality of the, 
the relay play from center field into with a Johnny Pesky hold on to the ball too long, allowing the Cardinals to win. Did that really happen? 1975. Huh. Almost 30 years later. It took them 30 years to get to the World Series again. I don't even want to count how many times the Yankees won in that period of time. Far too many, okay? Everything seemed to be going right. One play. Yeah, a weird interference call that you've probably never seen in your entire life happened in that World Series, cost the Red Sox a game. 78. Oh, I was in middle school. I remember that. I remember sitting in our, our lab. We were making batteries at the time, and that was the day that the one-game playoff was going to take place. And there was a one-game playoff because the Red Sox had blown the largest lead in history and allowed the Yankees to catch up to them, and they're tied, and there's one game. And we we're all looking forward to going home and watching the game. And we did until Bucky Dent hits a home run. The inexplicable happened. He doesn't hit with any power, but yet he hits a home run, wins the game for the Yankees. Futility, again. And my last time, 1986. That's all i got to say. Actually, that's not the last time. 2003. The Red Sox have the Yankees where they want them. Game 7 of the ALCS. They have the lead. Grady Little sends out Pedro Martinez after throwing 100 pitches, and all of the statistics say that his ERA after 100 pitches goes through the roof. They lose the game in extra innings to Aaron Boone. Home run. Another one of those guys who shouldn't hit one. Futility. It's not just sports. You will groan because of the misery that sin has brought into this world. You know the pain of illness, whether it's yours or that of someone that you love. That is part of the groaning that takes place. The conflict that takes place in families and neighborhoods and not just on the global scale of nations, but sometimes it's far more personal when it's the one you love and now you can't even talk. You will groan because of your sin. Because you've done the same thing again. You will groan because of your futility. Out of work. Another application. No response. You will groan. But don't feel bad for Satan. He got it worse because he is the one who caused it all. So, God cursed the serpent above all things. Secondly, we see that we are to expect hostility from the evil one. It is pride and hostility that caused the scene in the garden in the first place. The serpent's pride and his hatred of God, wanting to get the glory of God, hating the one who was made in God's image and wanting to hurt The only way he can hurt God in his mind is to hurt the one made in his image. And so he seeks out to ruin this one. It's a tactic that we, that we see taking place later on in scripture as well. Uh, when, when Balaam refused to curse the Israelites because God had blessed the Israelites, what had to happen? They had to get Israel to sin so God would curse them and remove his blessing. 
So what he's going to do is get them to sin so they no longer live in the state of blessedness and a fellowship with God. What's his punishment? I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. Hostility. God ensures that there will be hostility between two parties. We could take this on a very superficial level and just think that it's, it's people are afraid of snakes, and most of us in this room are probably afraid of snakes. There's a couple of you who might like snakes. Is there anyone here who likes snakes? Okay, Mike, and he liked. <laughs> Doug, you like snakes? Sort of, okay. That's three people in the room who like snakes. Not very many. Most people freaked out by snakes. Don't want anything to do with them. But something bigger than that is going on. If that's all the scripture is telling us, then it's not very helpful for our lives, is it? It's not very meaningful for the big picture. The scriptures basically view humanity as falling into two different classes. Okay? If you talk to someone from Boston or New York, yeah, there's two classes. There's Red Sox fans and Yankees fans. And everyone is one of the two, right? No. Similar to that, but different. The first is that one is a child of wrath. People whose father is of is the devil, they are people who are stuck in sin. Jesus makes an outrageous on the surface claim in John 8. He's arguing with the Pharisees. And he talks about how the sun sets people free. And they, even though they're under the oppression of Rome, sort of go, we are Abraham's children. We've never been enslaved by anybody. It's like, oh, really? Egypt? Assyria? Babylon? Greece? Rome? (laughs) But Jesus points out something far more profound than that. Because he, he tells them that you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Jesus takes it far more deeply and profoundly than they had been thinking. They've been thinking about, we don't serve any other king. He says, you serve the serpent from the garden. You want to do his will. We see this as well in Ephesians chapter 2, the very beginning. You, he's speaking to Christians. You were, past tense, dead in trespasses and sins, which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so the one, one class of people is these sons of disobedience, these children of wrath, whose father is the devil. This is unregenerate humanity, which unknowingly serves the evil one and obeys his will. But there's also the seed of the woman. Not clarified there in that context, but we see that it, the seed represents, first of all, those who fear and obey God. Abel, Seth, Noah. And then we see that this idea of the seed coming back with Abraham. 
There's a promised seed. And Isaac is the promised son, but he's not quite the seed yet. And then Jacob is the, pro- is the one through whom the promise will come, looking forward to this one seed who will represent God's people, this one. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus is revealed by the genealogy to be the Son of God. But it's interesting, it says the Son of Adam, the Son of God. But it starts the genealogy with, with the idea that he was the son of Joseph, so people thought. Because we already know from earlier in the text of Luke that his father was really God. Mary would be overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit and conceive a child without the, uh, the normal means of having a child. And so, Jesus is revealed to be the Son of God, but the, 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 the idea is that he is born of the woman. We see this in Genesis, the offspring of the woman. Well, Galatians, what does it talk about? That in the fullness of time, born of a woman, okay, humanity, he is human, he has a human nature. But we also know that in, in Luke's gospel, it teaches the, the idea of a virgin birth, that he was not born of a man. Therefore, he was not born under the headship or covenant headship of Adam. Therefore, he was not a sinner. So I'm going to talk more about the incarnation uh, in the weeks to come, but let's just get that one part of it right now in that he is not born under Adam. He is the only person ever born not to be born of a man, born only of a woman. And that's important because therefore he is not under guilt and condemnation because of Adam. He's the one person because he is the one person who is going to be able to make everything right between God and his people again. But this hostility, we see it playing out even in Luke's gospel. We see that, although it's not in Luke's gospel, we, we, in, in Matthew's gospel and then in Revelation 12, we see that idea that Satan lays in wait at his birth. Okay, They're enga- going to engage in a lengthy battle. Satan, through Herod, was seeking to destroy the one who came into the earth to save sinners. We see in Luke's Gospel in chapter 4 that Jesus is sent into the wilderness and the power of the Spirit in order to be tempted by Satan. And so he engages, in a sense, in a contest, a trial with the evil one and where Adam had failed before him and where Israel had failed in the wilderness between them, Jesus succeeds. Jesus is faithful. That's not it. We see at the end of that, and when the devil had, uh, in verse 13 of chapter 4, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time had come. What was that opportune time? Luke 22. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. And he led Judas to betray Jesus 
which led to his trial and to his death. And so the battle culminates in the cross. And everything looks very bleak, very bad. Sort of like game four of the 2004 American League Championship Series. Bottom of the ninth. The greatest closer in history, Mariano Rivera, comes out to pitch against the Red Sox. And I'm in bed because there is no hope. The ongoing hostility means that we will lose some battles that doesn't always look good. That hostility continues now. But we get to rejoice. We get to rejoice because Christ triumphs over the enemy. This conflict is not perpetual. It comes to an end, which is alluded to here, because Moses writes from the the Song of God, He shall bruise your head to the serpent. That word bruise can also mean to crush, to fall fall upon. What complicates it is that it's used in both here and then and he will bruise or crush, uh, you will bruise or crush his heel. It's the same word in Hebrew. In the Greek translation, they use the same word. And oddly enough, in the, the Latin Vulgate, they change the words. Okay? Uh, not sure exactly why they did that. Uh, the second one regarding the heel is basically to uh, lie in wait. So I guess picking up the imagery of the snake waiting to bite the heel of somebody. Jesus' heel is bruised, but he shall crush the head of the serpent. Jesus comes in part to stomp upon the head of the evil one, thereby destroying him. Jesus, he overcomes by being bruised himself. It is through that bruising, his death upon the cross, that he overcomes the evil one, but he was not destroyed by that. Why did he have to do this? Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise will partake of the same. Because we're human, he's going to be human. So that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So what the author of Hebrews is saying is that up until this point, the one who has the power of death because of sin is the evil one, and he he makes us his slaves by fear of death whether we recognize it or not. Jesus comes to destroy him, to set us free. It's similar to the picture of what takes place in the Exodus. When they're going through the Red Sea, God destroys the Pharaoh and his armies to set his people free. Not just get them out of town, but now freedom. No more shall Pharaoh chase him. Okay, So Satan controls many through the fear of death, but Jesus frees us from this fear by dying. Satan has been dealt a mortal blow, but he is not yet dead. 
prior to game four of that, to most of you, very unimportant baseball playoff series. Kevin Millar of the Red Sox said, they better not let us win game four. He thought that if they somehow were able to pull off this one victory, they would be able to steamroll their way through the rest of the series. Don't let us win, he said. And so what I didn't see, because I was asleep, because I had to preach the next morning, was that Kevin Millar got a hit. Actually, he got a, he got a walk against Mariano Rivera, leaves the game for a pinch runner who steals second base, who gets knocked in to tie the game in the ninth inning, awaiting the home run by David Ortiz to win the game. As good as dead, but now still alive, so to speak. Okay, The death blow to the Yankees was, was that game, but they still played three more games. But it broke their hearts to lose that game. So Satan has been dealt a mortal blow, but he's not completely dead. We read in, in Romans 16 that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. This should have some, some vivid idea for my daughter back there because this past week we saw a crushed snake in the road. It had been driven over about 15, 20 times. It was flat as a pancake, okay? It wasn't just dead. It was flat. That's what's going to happen. Okay? But notice how it happens. God crushes Satan, but it's under our feet. We get to dance, so to speak, on the dead body of the one who plagued us, of the one who started this whole mess. The ones that have been freed by Jesus will join him in crushing Satan under their feet. (coughs) Have you thought about that recently? Have you thought about that ever? Maybe we should. Because we might need more hope as we, as we deal with the futility. What happened at the end of that playoff series was that the Red Sox won in seven games in Yankee Stadium. In the home of their rival and the Red Sox and their fans got to dance in the Yankee playground. That's sort of what's going to happen at the end. We're going to dance where the devil once stood. I'm excited to hear that. You know? And so rivals, rivalries, point us to the conflict that really began in the garden. The victor was uncertain. Uh, Sorry, was actually very certain, if I could read. But it didn't always seem quite so certain. The evil one has often been able to boast, to mock, and to hurt God's people. But the song in the garden can be true. 
Just like the Red Sox fans got to ride and enjoy the duck boat parade after the 2004 World Series, we will get, so to speak, our duck boat parade because God the Son crushed the head of the enemy. Right now we sing in hope. Remember those two songs I talked about at the beginning by Queen? We will rock you. We are the champions. There's an order. The first is sung before the conflict or in the midst of the conflict. We will rock you. Okay? We're, gonna, we're going to beat you. It hasn't taken place yet. The second song is when, when it's all done. We are the champions of the world. Right now we live in the we will rock you. Okay? But we're going to get to we are the champions. You get that? The hope that should be there. It's not an idle boast because it does not rest upon our power, but upon the work of him who came for us. Let's pray. Father, we so easily get discouraged by the battle, by the hostility that we experience from those who do not love you, the futility uh, that touches so many of our lives in so many different ways, the failure that we experience. Whether it's because we sinned again or because we're knocked down again, we are often tempted to give up. So we ask that you would sustain us by hope by the hope we have because of your word and promises, which are true. Your son has crushed the head of Satan. We have your promise that soon you will crush him under our feet. And so sustain us until the day we triumph over the enemy because of the son in whose name we pray. Amen.